Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monaco Radio's food and drink programme. I'm your host, Chiara Rimella. Coming up, we sit down with Jean-Philippe Blondet, executive chef at one of London's most exclusive fine dining restaurants. It's not about technique for me, even if we are doing things a bit technical, but it's all about feeling, you know. Also on the programme, we unpack the cultural significance of rye in Finland. The mother for the rye cracker has been given by another famous chef to the previous owners and the story goes that it's over 100 years old. Plus, we visit one of Italy's oldest wineries in South Troll. All that right here on the menu on Monocle Radio. Much has changed in the world of fine dining over the past few decades, but there are certain names that will forever carry a certain gravitas and a sense of authority in the industry. Restaurants like Alain Ducasse at the Dorchester Hotel in central London are cemented in the global consciousness as examples of the golden classic standard when it comes to contemporary food, crisp white tablecloths and precise hospitality. After being awarded three Michelin stars in 2010, today the kitchen celebrates modern French haute cuisine and champions distinctive fresh flavours, which is driven largely by its energetic and innately creative executive chef Jean-Philippe Blondet. Born and raised in Nice in the south of France, Jean-Philippe has been working alongside Alain Ducasse for over a decade. From Hong Kong to Monaco, he has brought his unique style and desire to use local ingredients wherever he goes. Monaco's Monica Lillis sat down with chef Jean-Philippe to find out more about his passion for sustainable cooking and learn more about his passion for gastronomy at the highest level. You grew up in the south of France, you grew up in Nice. Was there something about the food there that got you so inspired to become a chef and do you have any really fond food memories that you can share with us? Yeah, a lot of people ask me, why are you doing chef since when you wanted to do chef? I think I'm born to be a chef. I, I, I'm in love for food. When you are in Nice, you're in Provence, uh, you are very lucky to have uh, all this market around so with a small um, grower coming every Saturday and Sunday in the small village and uh, showcase a bit what they're doing, you know, during the week. So you are just in middle of season, so respect of seasonality in my family was super important. And I was lucky enough to, to eat all these kind of beautiful products. So yes, I think it helped me a lot. I wanted to be pastry chef first. And I switched. Oh, really? Yeah. Why did you make the switch? When I was 10, 12 years old, my parents, you know, divorced. So I cook a lot of cake. I was taking recipe, but already, you know, at 10 years old, I could not follow a recipe. So I... If they give me a recipe, I start to add a few things, change of things. You know, I, I like to, to do a lot of mistakes, to learn from the mistake. I was a bit, you know, in this kind of uh, philosophy. So they tell me, okay, Jean-Philippe, you have to do a brioche dough, you have to do, and you have to follow the recipe. And I say, oh, I just cannot. It's not me. So I, I spoke with all my teacher and everything. And they told me, listen, if you cannot follow a recipe in pastry, it need to be super precise. And if you are not super precise, you are going to, not be good, basically. <laughs> I said, okay, fair enough. So I'm, I'm going to be a chef. And the second thing as well is because I was eating a lot of sugar. So I was a bit scared to be like uh, under 150 <laughs> kilos. But now, if I have to think a bit differently and after all the experience I have, if I will have a teacher tell me like, listen, maybe we can try to develop something together, you know, in pastry, but doing like cooking pastry, maybe I will have to be good there. No one really uh, tell me that I could do that. So that's why I'm a chef now. I'm very happy because I'm free to do all what I want. And it's not about technique for me, even if we are doing things a bit technical. But it's all about feeling, you know, and this feeling is, is, is a key for me. 
There's so many restaurants in London. There's so many Michelin. What makes your style your style? What is my style? My style is a feeling. So I repeat a lot of time about this, this word feeling, feeling, feeling. But it's really that associated with a vegetable. Vegetable for me is everything. It's super important. And I've got more attention inside the garnish than for the protein. Of course, the protein needs to be superb, needs to be beautiful. You need to know everything, who did it, why they did it, where it's coming from, what did they hit, what was the name of the animal. You know, I really like to know everything. But after you need to apply a technique and you will have a nice piece of meat, you know. But the vegetable, when you have a beetroot, when you have a cauliflower, when you have an artichoke, you know, which is not so sexy, so how to bring this vegetable and to transform it to have our guests, you know, fall in love with them. But the vegetable, if you don't have the inspiration, if you don't have the connection with the grower, uh, did it with the shape to understand what you have on hands, you know. Today I can have a beetroot, will be totally dry because it's the end of summer. It didn't get a, a lot of rain. It's a bit tight inside, you know, and you will need to bring a different love inside to express the same results that when you are in autumn and the, this beetroot will be a bit more uh, rich in terms of juice. What I'm training all our chefs is to understand what you have on hands, understand why you are doing that. And this is the most fascinating things for me, which is the most complicated things to make them learn. Because to cook a perfect potato or to beetroot or whatever, just to cook it, okay, fine. But you need to understand what's happening in your pan in front of you, right? So this is the most important thing. It's a lot of emotion when my eyes, the smell, the memory, because, you know, it's connecting with a lot, a lot with the childhood. You know, I've got cauliflower. Why? Because my mom used to, to do this gratin of cauliflower with eggs inside with a bechamel. Not very wow dish, you know, but this is my memory. So the first dish that I did when I arrived here in London was to do that dish with a Michelin star philosophy. But yeah, the feeling for me is important because what I've got behind the scenes, I need to, to try to vehiculate it for our guests. And no later than Saturday, it was a souffle with the old Comté and the yellow wine. And it was table 25, you know, and she cried. <laughs> really? She just cried. So, I mean, I don't want people crying in my restaurant, but crying for emotion and because she get touched about the intention, you know, we did something... Uh, because last time she came, she speak to me about uh, the yellow wine and I just created something a bit special for her. You know, this is what I want to, to create. It's all about heart. It's all about emotion, connection. It's an abstract art, what I'm doing, in a way, you know. But you, you need to come here and, and, and be ready for that, right? Yeah, and that leads me quite nicely onto my next question. Three Michelin stars. Amazing. Congratulations. What makes it that kind of restaurant is it that feeling is it that special making someone cry maybe or is it is it the food is it the ingredients that's really what I want to know because what differentiates you from a two Michelin star say you know you just need to be yourself and to be confident about who you are and what you want to do and don't think about the Michelin think about the emotion you want to to give to your guests this is the most important things of course product is a key the service for me is as important as the cooking, so even sometimes more, because, you know, there is this wall between our guests and, and the cuisine, and the, yes, you can have everything, you know, like if you really want to dip inside this plate and to try 
to catch each single element you know you, you will have but service is here to bring the story to explain what's happening to to bring all these elements you know around that dish to the guest but after the most thing is to be consistent and consistency is the most difficult things you, you you can try to have to be 100% consistent I don't know how to do it because I explained to you uh, you need to understand each single vegetable about what we will have and uh, sometimes In a day, I will have uh, three different batch of vegetables. You know, if the one is picked up yesterday, the one today, and uh, the seed is different and whatever. So, and we take a lot of risk as a submission star because I need to follow the season. I'm changing the menu very often about what I can find on the market. So we, we, we change, 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 and we need to train people, you know. So this is as a help in terms of consistency. But... You expect to have exactly the same taste as this lobster like uh, next month, tomorrow, or in six months, or in two years' time. But as well, you, you need to be consistent in terms of following the season. I kind of wanted to move on and talk a little bit about your passion for sustainability, seasonality. What is that like here, and how do you implement that? We don't think about that. We, we leave it. Your duty as a chef is to try to use everything. So the skin, the seeds, the inside, the outside, the, every single thing. Don't waste anything. Everything they're here because because of something, right? We don't we don't know why. So this is the philosophy that we have. Now we are not 100% perfect, but we try to really source as much as we can around the restaurant, which is very proud of because when we start, you know, it was like a kind of 50-50, like less than 10 years ago. So. We work together hand on hands with all the small growers and everything. So these things we cannot, you know, the weather in UK is the weather in UK, right? So there is a lot of rain. All what is the roots is not a problem. But as soon as you need to have a bit of sun, you know, for tomatoes, tomatoes in UK start very really good to be maybe September <laughs> when uh, in South of France starting in June, you know. But we, we, we play a bit. We play a bit and we adapt ourselves. For us, it's super important. There's no waste. And we've already spoken about it a little bit, but could you tell me, while we're recording, what is your favorite ingredient to cook with? Favorite ingredient to cook with is, is <laughs> not what I said before. Uh, oh, so you changed your mind. <laughs> no, 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 I don't change my mind. In terms of vegetables, still the cauliflower and artichoke, <laughs> but the olive oil is my number one. Okay, so your favorite vegetable is artichoke. Yeah, it's artichoke, cauliflower. Basically, it's all the, the vegetables that, you know, is not very famous. And it's what I like. It's like when you are not famous, I like to make you famous. So you like to sort of champion the underdog? I love it. Yeah. Okay, I like it. You know, like, to put a cauliflower as a star, a lot of people comment. Like, they, they come in the kitchen and say, oh my God, the cauliflower, I would have never expected to have a taste like that, you know. And uh, when, when people are coming, our guests coming and say, wow, 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 the cauliflower, the cauliflower. I love it. That was Monica Lillis in conversation with chef Jean-Philippe Blondet. You're listening to The Menu. Next, we head to Finland, where rye has long been a staple in local diets. The grain has been cultivated for over two millennia and even today, chefs continue to experiment with the ingredient in kitchens up and down the country. 
Our Helsinki correspondent Petri Burtsov met with local chef Tom Hansen and food writer Iman Garagodzlu to discover why Finns love rice so much and why the crop holds such cultural significance in the nation. The Finns' love affair with rye goes back a long way, 2,500 years at least. Rye gained popularity after the locals discovered that it was much easier to cultivate in the harsh northern climate than other crops such as wheat or barley. In addition to being easy to grow, Finns soon discovered that dishes such as rye bread and rye porridge were high in fiber, healthy and provided long-lasting energy for the people toiling away on the fields and in the forests. Fast forward 25 centuries and surprisingly little has changed. Finns still eat a lot of rye, over 13 kilos per year to be exact. That's per person. In 2017, when Finland celebrated 100 years of independence, rye bread was voted Finland's national dish. And when Finns move abroad, and here I speak very much from personal experience, the first thing that they ask their friends and families to send over to them is, you guessed it, rye bread. To understand what explains Finland's enduring love affair with rye and how it can be used in cooking, I joined the co-founder and chef Tom Hansen from one of Helsinki's most loved neighborhood bistros, Kurna. I began by asking Hansen about how rye is used in Kurna's ambitious cooking. In our bread baskets, we have a very classic uh, rye cracker that uh, that we've been serving ever since the Kurnas uh, started. Uh, the mother for the for the rye cracker has been given by another famous chef to the previous owners, and uh, the story goes that it's over a hundred years old. And uh, and so we've been just uh, using that. And every time we make the new dough, we always use the old old dough as as a as a mother, and we continue it like that. And then obviously. A very big way that we use it is as a as a flavor element. It's it's very unique as uh, to be used as a flavor element. So, whenever we want to kind of change some some aspect, if we're doing a kind of dish that's maybe based for, uh, in another another cuisine, then we might use rye, for instance, as uh, as a flavoring agent to make it more our style. So, for instance, one thing that we've done done for for many years as well as we we take a very classic finnish fish the vendis and we've done like a vendis tempura so but instead of having just a very straightforward uh, wheat flour uh, tempura batter we use rye in it to create a more yeah a, a more finnish aspect Despite being traditionally used in simple countryside cooking, Hansen is convinced that rye lends itself for use in more ambitious restaurant kitchens too to showcase what rye can do, Hansen wanted to prepare a burbot soup that he also serves at the restaurant. Sour rye starter as a, as, a, as a flavoring agent for this soup. So using it as a thickener. In French cooking, normally we do a roux, which is uh, butter and flour to thicken soups. So we've taken a sour rye uh, starter and basically just uh, running it into the soup as a flavoring agent, but also as a thickener. So this is the part where you add the right uh, mother into the into the soup stock, right? Exactly. And now I'm just going to cook it out for about five ten minutes. Similar way that if you add a if you add a little bit of flour or anything into into soup bases, you know, you need to cook out cook it out. Otherwise, it starts to stick stick to the bottom of your mouth. So. 
yeah, now I'm just gonna fry the fish. Uh, first, I'm gonna fry the liver. Mm. As Hansen continued to fry the burbot, we were joined by Iman Karagoslu, an Iranian-born chef and food writer based in Helsinki. I had invited Karagoslu to join us because I wanted to hear how he, as an immigrant to Finland, sees the country's love affair with rye. Well, I am Iman Mansurotola Karagoslu. Um, I'm originally uh, from Tehran, Iran. I've lived most of my life in Finland, but before that in China, in Beijing, and, and, and before that in, in Pakistan, Islamabad, and Karachi. My, my family is Persian, so Roy wasn't in our house. Even though I, I'm grow, you know, I was brought up in, in Finland and, and ate Finnish, uh, Finnish school food, but it didn't live with us in the house. So Roy was something exotic from the beginning till today. Uh, I think in our house, Lena is is the one who craves for rye rye bread time to time, and and I like it as well. But yeah, at the beginning, when at this school we had different kinds of bread, rye vita, kind of like dry bread, and then and then yalki uh, uni, which is quite sour, really hard, <laughs> kind of like why the hell anybody wants to eat the hard bread like this? <laughs> I can't even bite it. And then you have reikalepa, which is really nice when it's when it's fresh and and when butter melts on it, and it's one of the most delicious breads ever. Why do you think? You know, what explains Finn's love affair with rye? Well, I think there are things that you grow up with, but um, I mean you have to grow up with certain things. Rye has this sourness, groundiness to it, which I don't. I think there's a comfort into it. it it's a comfort food. Uh, I make sour bread time to time, and every time I want to bring that sourness to it, I use rye flour, and that makes it totally dis- delicious. It, it brings the sourness of sourdough to its best. As Hansen continued preparing the burbot soup, a smell of butter, garlic, and fried fish filled the kitchen. I decided to ask him what advice he would give to those listeners who'd like to experiment cooking with rye. Well, I think in any baked goods, basically, it can be used as a as a flavoring agent. I think what uh, what Imam was saying about using a little bit of rye in bread, uh, it, it immediately creates some more depth or uh, acidic flavor into it. So I think that's uh, anything that you're baking, try to throw a splash of rye in and see how it tastes. <laughs> So tell me what's happening now. All right, so uh, I've got the soup ready. Uh, potatoes are, are, are cooked and uh, and the carrots are cooked. So now I'm just going to assemble the dish. Um, uh, usually I, I start with putting in putting in the liquids first, and then after that I uh, I start to put all the rest uh, rest of the ingredients in. Wow. I mean, it's amazing how you can you can taste the rye. It's not overpowering in there, but it mm-hmm. adds like strength and depth into the into the dish exactly as you as you described, Tom. Yeah. That soup was simply divine, and just one of the many ways that you can use rye in cooking. I had some rye crisp bread to accompany the soup, and the following morning, some rye bread for breakfast. So, as you can probably tell, rye is something that Finns eat almost on a daily basis. 
Kauppa Monokolin Helsinki. I'm Petri Burtsov. Petri Burtsov with that report. You're listening to The Menu. Now it's time for the week's top food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Mariella Bevan. Scientists in South Korea have grown beef cells inside grains of rice in a bid to create a cheaper and more eco-friendly alternative than cuts of meat. According to the team at Yonsei University in South Korea, the rice has 8% more protein and 7% more fat than regular rice and also has a much smaller carbon footprint. The researchers say the food may serve as relief for famine, military ration or even space food in the future. Shoppers in the UK could face shortages of black tea in some supermarkets as a result of trade route disruptions and delays. It is understood that the issue is linked to the Houthi attacks on vessels in the Red Sea, as well as a delay in a prominent tea supplier. Retail bosses have assured tea drinkers that the problem will be temporary, stressing the consumer impact will be minimal. And finally, French wine exports fell to their lowest in at least 17 years as shipments from Champagne, Bordeaux and all other major wine regions saw a near 10% volume decrease. Declining trade of both sparkling and still wines came as a result of lower demand from the USA, according to the French Association of Wine and Spirit Exporters. Those are the week's food and drinks headlines. Now back to Chiara. Thanks, Mariella. You're listening to The Menu. Set in the foothills of the Italian Alps, in the verdant surroundings of South Tyrol, the Isarco Valley is home to the country's northernmost wine-growing region. It's an area known for its cold climate and steep vineyards, with elevations higher than 800 metres, which allows white grape varietals to excel and deliver a unique crisp acidity. As more and more vintners look to adapt to climate change by growing their grapes at higher altitudes, the Isarco Valley is going from relatively unknown to increasingly popular. Monocle's correspondent Ivan Carvalho headed up to the valley to speak with established and emerging producers to find out why things are looking up there. The Zarco Valley is a land at a crossroads. Part of the South Tyrol region, it once belonged to Austria. The valley has a majority German-speaking population, who may refer to it as the Isaac Valley, even though they are now part of Italy. The Zarco Valley sits on the south side of the Brenner Pass, crossing the Alps. On hillsides, Visitors are surrounded by picturesque views of the snow-capped Dolomite Mountains in the distance. In the foreground, there are terraced vineyards, some as high as 900 meters, growing white grape varieties like Silvaner and Kerner, which are not found elsewhere in Italy. One winery well-versed in viticulture here is Abbazia di Novacella, a 12th-century abbey run by the Augustinian order, that has nearly nine centuries of winemaking experience under its belt. Organized as a cooperative made up of 60 growers, it has a formidable following of fans in Italy and abroad. Elias Holzer is director of sales at the Novacella Winery. So Abbazia Novacella is located in the Valle Zarco Valley, which is actually the northernmost wine growing area of Italy. It's quite high by altitude, between 630 and 950 meters. We um, work mainly with cool climate white grape varieties, such as Sylvana, Grüner Feldlina, Kerna, Riesling, which are not very common in Italy. Usually find them on the north side of the Brennero Pass in Austria, Germany, and Alsace. That's because um, we have extreme climate conditions, high altitude, thick day-night temperature difference, so very crispy, fresh acidity in all those white wines. 
The Kerner variety is a genetical crossing between Riesling and Schiava, between a white and a red grape variety. And it's very resistant to the cool climate we have here, so perfect for the Valle Zarco Valley. On the nose, it's a semi-aromatic grape variety, which is very expressive. Reminds a lot exotic fruit notes like pineapples, like maracuya notes. While in the mouth, it's very spicy, racy, with a ginger catch in the finish. Silvana is our historic grape variety. We cultivate it here in the Valle Zarco Valley since more than 150 years, so since the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. It's a very ancient Austrian grape variety, which these days you hardly find in Austria. It's more common in Alsace and in Germany. It's a very delicate, elegant variety um, with a crispy acidity and typical ambassador of our valley. So it's on the nose, it's delicate uh, yellow fruits like pear, apples and apricot. In the mouth, it's spicy, racy with very salty mineralic finish. And now, in this area, compared to what we'd find with this grape, say, in, in Alsace, what, what are the differences, you know, when, when you're tasting? So compared to other areas, this is uh, for sure a very vertical style of wine, which means it has a very high, crispy acidity. So it's very fresh, very clean in the finish. Despite its claim as Italy's northernmost wine region and vineyards at high elevation, Holzer notes that even cooler climates like the Azarco Valley need to respond to the trend of warming temperatures impacting the globe. So this wine I poured is a Silvana 2022 vintage, which was actually a very warm year. So the style of our wines is changing the last 40, 50 years because of global warming. When we taste old vintages of our library, of our archive, those wines of the 60s, 70s had a much higher acidity. I remember the 19. 76 vintage of Sylvaner, which had about 9.6 grams of acidity per liter, which is very, very high. These days, we hardly reach this freshness, this high acidity. So you can really see here is actual proof, analytic proof, that, that things are changing, that it is warming up in this valley. Yes, for sure. The global warming, as we Italians say, is a brutta bestia. So the style of the wines is changing because of the global warming. And now you have Riesling here. Before, it's true that in Alto Adige, here in South Tyrol, you had Riesling at a lower elevation. So this is also an example of, of, of how things are changing. For sure, we can react with different methods to the global warming. So what happens in the last 10 years is that our grape varieties, our historic grape varieties, are climbing up the mountains in higher and higher areas. But in the lower, warmer areas, we have to change the grape varieties if this phenomenon is going on. Next to the Zarco Valley, visitors can enjoy the area's wines at the Oberregen Ski Resort. Here I meet with sommelier David Weissensteiner, whose family runs Hotel Sonalp, where guests can enjoy fine dining and wines after a day on the slopes. David Weissensteiner of Hotel Sonalp. The Valle Zarco has very typical climatic and geographic conditions so that their main grapes like Silvana, Melorturga, Gewürztraminer, Riesling, Kerna get exceptionally well produced. We have typical granite, gneiss and uh, slate soil there, which is also what gives the, the wine a pure acidity and also again these particular mineralic notes that are most common in these kind of wines. So now here in the Sonap Hotel, you have guests staying typically a week, so they can try different wines, you know, at dinner. 
From Valley's article, what varieties do you like to introduce them with at the start of the week? I would probably start off with the Silvana from the Valle Zarco. Silvana is the most common variety produced in the Valle Zarco. Secondly, I probably would recommend them a nice Kerner. The Kerner is a very, very fresh, fruity, slightly with a very nice acidity wine that is usually not matured in oak, so very fresh, very straight, very drinkable wines. Also very important is the is the Milaturga, a very simple, light, smooth wine that can be very well recommended for an aperitivo. And obviously our most historic grape, the Gewürztraminer, is also quite common in the Val di Zarco. And how do you see it, you know, this Gewürztraminer here compared to what you can taste in other regions? I think the particularity of the Gewürztraminer in Alto Adige compared to other regions in Europe is that it is it has fresher notes. It's very complex, very fruity. It has nice scents of violet, of lychees, of roses. But it is very complex, very fruity, very fully bodied. And the biggest difference is that it's definitely drier than in other parts of Europe. One of the producers stocked in the cellar of Hotel Sonal is Weingut Roch a small emerging natural wine producer from the Izarco Valley. I caught up with the winery's owner, Hannes Ogschol, who grows varieties such as Gruner Betliner and Riesling, a grape that has grown in stature here recently, and who also makes blends of white wines. Weingut Roch winemaker, Hannes Ogschol. We work in a natural way. For example, our wines ferment spontaneously, so with natural yeast from the vineyards or the cellar. We don't add that much sulfur and there's no filtration with the wines. Okay, Hannes, here I see we have this nice barrel. Um, what do we have inside that you're going to take a sample of? Here we have skin-fermented Gewürztraminer and Silvano, so a orange wine. And what do you like about this wine? So I like it because it's... I think a very old wine style also, that orange wine. Also my grandpa was making wine like this and now has more or less revival and it's very interesting and it's always a very fresh but intense, strong wine. So now we have Grünerweltliner from the Isaac Valley. So Grünerwaldlino is more known from Austria, but also in South Tyrol, especially in our valley, in the Isaac Valley, is a bit of Grünerwaldlino. It came like in the 80s to, to our valley because we are also a very cool climate wine region and it works well in, in our region here. Speaking of the terroir, so here in terms of soil, what do you have? The soils underneath the, these vines? So our soil is quartzfilit, so a very stony, not very rich soil. But also the plant must work to, to get all their, what they need. And there's a big expression, there's a Visgrüner compared to what you would say have in, in Bacau in, in Austria. So how I said, it brings good the terroir, so it's in every place it's different, but it still have the typical pepper let's say and it's always a very fresh wine it's not very aromatic so it's good and interesting wine up-and-coming vignerons like Hannes Ogschel 
together with winemakers at the local Izarco Valley Cooperative and longstanding producer Abancillo de Novecella, signaled the potential of this appellation for white grapes, especially given their privileged perch at higher elevation that allows them to make wines with the right amount of acidity, aromas, and flavors. For Monocle in the Izarco Valley, I'm Ivan Carvalho. Thanks, Ivan. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday in San Francisco. Also, don't forget to tune into our spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods, for a tour of some of the world's tastiest destinations. I am Kerarimella. This programme was produced by Monica Lillis and our sound engineers were Mariella Bevan and Lily Austin. Thanks for listening and until next week. <laughs>